Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. Uh, my guest today is Washington Post reporter Deneen Brown. Her work on the destruction of Black Wall Street, uh, the Tulsa massacre of uh, 1921, led to the new PBS film, Tulsa, The Fire and the Forgotten. It's now available to stream on the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel. Deneen, welcome to the show. Uh, man, what a film. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, you are from Tulsa. Your family has roots in Oklahoma. Is that what led you to tell this story? Yeah, well, I was born in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. My dad lives in Tulsa, and my great-grandmother lived in Tulsa. And my grandmother was born in a Bowley, which is an all-Black town, 60 miles from Tulsa. So my people are from Oklahoma. And uh, yes, I was led to tell the story initially in 2018 on a visit to my dad. My dad and I had lunch on Black Wall Street. And that's when I noticed that Black Wall Street, the site of this horrible massacre, was being gentrified. There was development. There was a minor league baseball stadium uh, luxury apartment complex, yoga studio, and all the signs of gentrification. And I thought it was inconsistent with the history of the place. I thought it was sacred ground because I knew that a massacre, one of the most horrible racial terror violence committed against Black people, had, it, had occurred there on the site. So that's when I started working on the story about the Tulsa race massacre. For people who don't know, can you just briefly describe what happened uh, in Greenwood on Black Wall Street in 1921? Uh, what led to it and uh, what happened on that horrible day? Yeah, so the Tulsa race massacre of 1921, it began on May 31st, 1921 when white mobs descended on Greenwood, which was an all-Black community that was so prosperous that Booker T. Washington called it Black Wall Street. Those white mobs destroyed more than 35 square blocks, uh, more than 1,200 homes owned by Black people and businesses owned by Black people. More than 300 Black people were killed and that violence, more than 800 Black people were injured. What led to the massacre, that the event that ignited, that really sparked the massacre, was the arrest of a young Black teenager. He called himself Dick Rowland. He was a shoe shiner, worked in downtown Tulsa, shining shoes uh, during a time when oil was booming. Tulsa was considered the capital oil capital of the world. So Dick Rowland was shining shoes downtown one afternoon on May 30th, 1921. In 1921, most cities in the United States were segregated by race. Dick Rowland went to use the restroom in the Drexel building, which was the only building in downtown Tulsa that allowed Black people to use public facilities. He uh, got on an elevator with a young white elevator operator named Sarah Page. When the doors opened from like the first floor to the third floor, Sarah Page shrieked 
when the doors opened and Dick Rowland ran, uh, some historians and family members believe that Dick Rowland and Sarah Page were in love, but it's unclear what happened in the elevator. You know, he could have bumped into her, some historians said. He could have stepped on her foot. But he was accused of assault, and he was arrested and taken to the courthouse in downtown Tulsa. The Tulsa Tribune, the white-owned newspaper in Tulsa, ran a headline that said, Mad Negro for attack on white girl on the elevator, which was a whistle call to the white mob in Tulsa, which was a hotbed for the Klan. Thousands of white people went to the courthouse demanding that Dick Rowland be released to them so that he could be lynched. And lynching was a reality. Uh, it, was a, it was a harsh reality. The Black veterans who lived in Greenwood, this prosperous all-Black town, heard about the mob at the courthouse. They went to the courthouse. They were like, no, Dick Rowland will not be lynched, not on our watch. So there was a battle between these Black veterans and white members of the mob. A shot went off, and historians and witnesses said all hell broke loose. And that's when the mob descended on Greenwood. You mentioned, uh, I think you described it as a whistle headline that said NAB Black Negro. It's featured in the movie. And I actually rewound it because I wanted to make sure I was like, did the headline say they nabbed or he was nabbed? It was actually a call to go get him. The headline was nab him. Um, so hardly a subtle whistle. So the Black veterans were prepared to protect him from lynching. A white mob was on the loose. A gun battle ensued. Uh, you also describe how uh, kind of, I guess, some of the first moments. There was a Black man with a gun, and a white man said, what are you going to do with that gun, N-word? And then there was a struggle over the gun, and then things spiraled from there. That's exactly how... Witnesses and survivors described it, yes. The Black veterans who knew how to fight, they had just come back from war. Uh, they wanted to protect Dick Rowland, and a white man approached one of the Black veterans and said, what are you going to do with that gun and word? And he said, I'm going to use it if I have to. And the gun went off and a shot was fired. Yes. How many people died? It's unclear how many people died the official records at 36, but historians now say more than 300 Black people were killed in that violence. White people were killed as well because Black veterans, when they went back to Greenwood, they defended their community and they knew how to fight. They held off the white mob as long as they could until white people took to airplanes and airplanes started dropping turpentine bombs on Greenwood. And so when you see the footage of Greenwood burning, you see buildings burning from the top. It was the first incident where a U.S. city was bombed from the air. That was on Greenwood, Black Wall Street, in 1921. The first time an American city was bombed from the air, it was Black Wall Street being bombed by other Americans. Deneen Brown, Washington Post reporter, her film is Tulsa, 
The Fire and the Forgotten. You can see it on PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel. Deneen, what has been the reaction to this film? Um, and I'm going, I, I'm going to give you some context for the question. My uh, home network, uh, uh, CBS, did a program about Tulsa. And then when I went on the Facebook page and I looked at the comments, people were outraged that folks were telling the story, really mad about it, like mad that this history was being discussed. Um, What's been the reaction uh, to your film, Tulsa, The Fire and the Forgotten, available on PBS Documentaries Prime Video? What's been the reaction? Well, um, the reaction has been from a number of people that I know and that I've talked to, they have been astounded by this history. A lot of people were furious that they weren't taught this history in school. Like, how could they not know about this race massacre that occurred in Tulsa, one of the you know worst incidents of racial violence in U.S. history? It was left out of textbooks. It, there was a, a deliberate conspiracy of silence. So many of the people I've talked to were outraged that this history and also the history of other massacres that occurred in other cities and during Red Summer, but they weren't taught about that. As you know, there's a divide in the country over race, the history of race being taught. There are several governors and uh, state legislators who are, have passed legislation to ban what they, they call critical race theory from being taught in classrooms. In Oklahoma, Governor Stitt actually signed a, a law that prohibited teachers from teaching any history that would make students uncomfortable, uh, including uh, history about race. So our country is, is in, uh, in the throes of this racial tension And uh, you see that in the comments. You'll see that in the comments on the shows. But yeah, um, most historians say this history has to be taught and many other people are happy to learn about it from this documentary and others that were aired. Did you grow up knowing this story? Um, Because one of the things that I took from your film is that it seems that it was even rarely talked about in Tulsa. I mean, I think that you said people just kind of whispered about it. Why was it because people, it was just still so recent and so painful? Yes, uh, so it is true. There was, a, there was a silence that pervaded Tulsa and Oklahoma after this massacre. I just talked to my aunt, my, my dad's sister, and she said that when she grew up, she would hear the adults like in the kitchen whispering about it. It was hush-hush in Black families. It wasn't really talked about because there was concern that it might happen again. And that concern was real. It was rooted in reality. Uh, black pe- um, so Black people whispered about it for the most part. And white people, um, well, you can see in the film that they took many of the pe- white people who participated in and the, the massacre who shot and killed Black people on, on Black Wall Street, they took photos standing over the bodies of Black people. They 
turned those photos into postcards and sent them across the country. But uh, weeks after the massacre, the city leaders and civic leaders decided that they needed to cover this up, that it was an embarrassment. And that's the word that they actually used. It was an embarrassment for the city. And um, for nearly 100 years, there was a silence. It was left out of textbooks. It was um, not talked about in the white community, whispered about in the black community. Libraries, one of the, the curators at the University of Tulsa's library told me when he came to work there in the 1980s, he found that someone had taken a razor to the magazines, to periodicals that mentioned the Tulsa race riot, which is what they called it at the time, and tried to cut out all the articles mentioning it. So there was this deliberate conspiracy of silence, which left it unknown to many people. And what happened uh, in Tulsa in 1921 um, wasn't something that took place in isolation. I mean, you talk in the film, there's discussion of Red Summer. Uh, tell us briefly, Deneen, what was Red Summer? So Red Summer was a reign of terror that occurred in the summer of 1919. It was called Red Summer. It was coined Red Summer by James Weldon Johnson, who was uh, an author, intellectual. He, he wrote with his brother, Lift Every Voice and Sing, the National Negro Anthem. He called this period of terror Red Summer. It was a time in which more than 25 Black communities and neighborhoods were destroyed by white mobs who killed Black people, looted, burned their homes. There was a massacre in Washington, D.C., Chicago, Omaha, Nebraska, and several cities across the country where white mobs terrorized Black people in their communities. I actually argue uh, that Red Summer could be extended beginning in East St. Louis in 1917. There was a massacre in East St. Louis, Illinois, where white mobs pulled Black people off of street cards and clubbed them to death in the street. That was in 1917. And then there's this reign of terror that um, pervades our communities and extends to Rosewood, which was a, um, a community prosperous Black community in Florida that was destroyed in 1923. So yes, the, this reign of terror, I argue, extends from East St. Louis through Tulsa all the way to Rosewood. Uh, one scene in the film, uh, your film, Tulsa, Fire in the Forgotten, that really was so... Um, hard to watch was uh, you and one of the, I guess, the human rights investigators at the gravesite. And you wrote about this in the Washington Post. Um, again, I'll remind people that it was uh, a lot of your work that uh, gave rise to this digging uh, and this investigation that people are doing. But you located what you believe to have been a, a mass grave of murdered Black people, uh, unnamed, but just a, a mass burial site from the uh, victims from the massacre. What was it like? I mean, I can't imagine what it would feel like to sort of be in that space. And certainly you, a daughter 
of Oklahoma. How did it impact you personally doing all of this work? Wow, my heart is beating hard as you, you mentioned that. Yeah. So Tulsa, how did it impact me? I, I'm driven as a reporter. You're a journalist and you know that we are shaped, we are molded to pursue the truth of the story. And uh, we pursue the truth of the story. And most reporters kind of push our emotions aside as we write and we report and we talk to people and we consume information. But I have to say, because my family, my father's family is from Oklahoma, this story has impacted me in a personal way. Um, I, it's almost like I feel this driving need to tell the story of the ancestors who died in the Tulsa race massacre who were, were killed. And I often say that like during this pandemic, you know, I was, you know, sitting in my home, like most people working from home, afraid to go to the grocery store, you know, afraid to get my hair done, afraid to go out. And the minute I found out that Tulsa, the city of Tulsa had announced that it was going to dig for this mass grave, that it would physically excavate for the first time in a hundred years, looking for mass graves of black people who were killed during this massacre. I hopped on the plane. I had to be there. I had to be on the ground. And I had to be there when they first started looking for these black people. And the my sources in Tulsa, many of them gathered at the fence of this cemetery, Oakland Cemetery. They cried, they prayed. Some of them tied black ribbons to the fence. Some of them um, talked about how they felt like, you know, they were answering the cries of these black people who were killed in this massacre. So it was a very moving experience as a reporter and just as a human. When you you talked a little bit about some of the reaction uh, to telling these stories, uh, to telling parts of history that make people uncomfortable, um, as you point out, we've seen a lot of legislation <laughs> geared toward uh, preventing the telling of um, certain parts of history, uh, or at least telling it completely. Does it make you angry? I mean, when you think about what happened in Black Wall Street and you see this reaction against talking about it um, and almost, you know, kind of insisting on the continued anonymity of these people, um, uh, of these victims, does it, does it bother you? Does it anger you? Uh, you know, how do you process that? Yeah, that's a great question. You see, if you can see my face, my face just kind of glazes over as a reporter. <laughs> We're like, we can't talk about our opinion. We can't talk about our emotions because I'm still working on the story as a reporter. I'm still writing about it as a human. Yeah. You know, as a human being writing about hundreds of black people being killed in massacres across this country. Yeah, there is a reaction. There is an emotional reaction. And what I do is I, I try to channel that in my writing and in my reporting. I am persistent. I am competitive. I am, uh, I try to write with as much power 
and emotion as I can. So you will feel it in my stories. That's what many of, of my readers say, that you can feel the pain of the ancestors. You can feel the pain and the emotion of the people that I'm writing about. So I, I channel all that emotion into my reporting and into my writing. And I will, if, if news breaks in Tulsa, you know, I'll get up in the middle of the night, I'll work until 2 a.m., you know, I'll drive, you know, hundreds of miles to get to the story. So that's how I channel my emotions here. It's to tell the story of people whose voices they tried to silence. They tried to silence the story. And now as a reporter, I'm trying to uncover it and, and tell the story as much as I can tell the story and write as many stories as I can for people now so they know what happened. What do you want people to take away from your work around this story, uh, right? So, you know, we talked about the reaction that, you know, some folks have and they're like, you know, we can't tell a history that makes people uncomfortable. We can't talk about things in history that uh, make America look bad, um, you know, as if there's any country that's not a, a whole big mix of a lot of positive and negative moments. I mean, that's world history. But in any event, so you have people who are like really wanting to silence the telling of some stories, but they're being told, what's the takeaway? You know, what do you want young people who learn about this are angered or disappointed or saddened by it. You know, no one was uh, indicted. No one was prosecuted. No one was brought to justice for dropping bombs on these people or killing them and burning and looting their businesses. Nothing happened, you know, from that standpoint. Um, it's a dark, dark moment in American history. What do you want people to take from it? Like, what's the takeaway? Oh my goodness, yes, you're you're absolutely right. It is a dark, dark, dark chapter in US history that actually continues. It hasn't been closed. I think the people that I've I've talked to in my reporting, they want justice. Like they want justice. And the people on the ground uh, working on the Tulsa race massacre, they want reparations, they want atonement. They want people to know what happened. Uh, they're demanding justice. They say reparations means land and money. And they've drawn a line in the sand. Um, they're not backing away from that demand for justice and for reparations. Um, so as a writer, you know, I'll continue to write that story and to pursue the truth, to uncover the truth. Because as much as people try to cover up the truth or try to push history down into a black hole, or the truth will always find the light, right? It will always be uncovered. I mean, you, can't, you can only cover it up for so long until it like bursts through the surface. And that's what it seemed happened with this massacre. When they found this mass grave, it was unmarked. Nobody knew those graves were in that pit until they dug for them. So it was like, as I said, it was like the truth had been unleashed. 
when they dug and they found, now they've found as many as 30, 36 coffins uh, in that mass grave. So the truth will be uncovered and it just takes people uh, who continue to fight for justice, who continue to write these stories. Everybody has a piece of work to do toward fighting for justice. And I, as a writer, I'll keep writing and I'll keep listening to the people who are on the ground fighting for justice and reparations and writing about it. The people who perpetrated these crimes are all dead. So the call for justice then is centered on uh, reparations. There's an active uh, movement uh, in Tulsa to seek reparations for the descendants of the victims uh, of this terror. Oh, yeah. So um, there is an active call for reparations from the city and the state. In fact, um, survivors, there are three known uh, living survivors of this massacre. They filed a lawsuit against the city and state officials demanding reparations. The mayor of Tulsa has said that he doesn't believe that this current generation should pay for the atrocities committed by previous generations. So there's this battle in the city of Tulsa, not only in Tulsa, but across the country, there is a demand for reparations um, by descendants of enslaved black people um, to pay for the injustice that was committed against people. Well, one of the things that was so fascinating about uh, your movie, I learned a lot, um, Tulsa, the film once again, Tulsa, The Fire and the Forgotten. Uh, everyone, you must see this. It's on the PBS Documentaries Prime Video channel. I learned that part of the reason that Greenwood was so prosperous in the first instance was because it was founded by people who had previously been enslaved by um, Native Americans. And then when they were liberated by their Native Americans, their former enslavers as reparations gave them land. And so that land gave rise uh, to Greenwood, which really became you know, the hub of a, of a really strong uh, black economy in the region. In the region. Uh, it, said it was the, one of the most prosperous black cities, or I think Oklahoma had more uh, prosperous independent black cities than anywhere else in America. Is that right? Did I get that statistic right? You're absolutely right. Oklahoma as a territory had the most all black towns, all, the, all black communities than any other jurisdiction, any other state in the uni United States. As I said, my, my grandmother is from one of those all black towns called Boley. You know, it's famous for its rodeo. My, my dad and I actually went to Boley during the, the making of this film. And he recalled um, visiting on a weekend. He said it, it was bustling. It looked like New York, you know, bright lights and, you know, stores and shops and people you know, um, enjoying the, the evening. Um, Greenwood, which was in Tulsa, had a population of 10,000 people. It had luxury shops. It had 21 restaurants. It had 30 grocery stores. It had its own Black-owned hospital. It had its own library. It had savings and loans and post office and three luxury hotels that could rival luxury hotels anywhere in the country. 
Uh, it had its own bus and taxi service. And there was a black man who owned six private airplanes. And there were black people who owned oil wells on this land that was rich with oil. So some of the old archival footage, you'll see black people standing in front of their house with oil well pumping in the background. So there was black wealth, it was concentrated black wealth and it was destroyed in there, those two days on May 31st, 1921 into June 1st, 1921, destroyed by white mobs. The fascinating thing is, you know, when you put that, all of this in context, it's not just the story of that terror, um, the terror of those two days, but it reminds me that there is so much history that we just don't learn. Like the, you know, the, the story that we're told about uh, Black folks in America is often so one, you know, it's like a one trick pony, you know, like we were enslaved and then we weren't, and then we were beaten in the civil rights movement. And then we had Barack Obama, the end. <laughs> um, and it's just so much more nuance and layer uh, to it. So, uh, you know, I, I could really keep you here uh, all day. It's powerful. It's riveting. Um, I, people, you will learn things uh, about, uh, you know, a part of our history that really must not be forgotten. And I have to say, you know, uh, Deneen, you do your ancestors proud and you do them justice by making sure that they're not forgotten. Uh, you know, people can pass all the laws they want. We're going to tell the stories of history. Uh, we will not be silenced. You're a, you're a reporter in a time where truth and journalism and facts are under attack. What's your advice to young people uh, who want to go into your business? Oh my gosh, I'm also a teacher, I'm a professor of journalism, and I tell them that this is one of the most important professions that they could join journalism, because journalists who pursue truth are watchdogs of a democracy. You can, you can ask stories of, of people, you can change people's lives, you can hold governments accountable with your writing, you can ask questions in your investigations, and you can you can change small pieces of the world and big pieces of the world. But I tell them to, to read as much as they can, to write as much as they can, to be confident in their writing and, and their reporting, and to make people accountable atrocities. I, and I often say that, you know, I've been a reporter at the Washington Post for 35 years. And for more than three decades, I walked by a sign in the lobby of the Washington Post, and it said, comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. That was our charge as reporters, to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So, I would, I tell young people to keep writing, to keep reading, to ask questions, you know, to hold the powerful accountable for atrocities that occur, that have occurred in the past and that are still occurring. What are you working on next? Okay, so I am in Mississippi and, um, wow, if I tell you the story, I might scoop myself. 
But uh, Mississippi has a history of lynchings. Uh, it led the country in the number of lynchings of Black people. It has a horrible history when it comes to racial terror. Nina Simone talked about Mississippi Goddamn. So I'm working on that story. And I'm working on some, you know, a series of stories about, about Black history for the Washington Post. I just wrote a story about Haiti. I wrote a story about Toussaint Overture and uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who were leaders of the Haitian Revolution that drove the French out of Haiti. One of the things that I do in my, my job is I work on <laughs> this team of reporters at the Post who, when something happens in the news, we dive into history and um, touch primary sources, read primary sources, books, documents, as, consume as much information as we can. And then, then we emerge with these narratives to, to give people context for what's happening now. So that's my job is to dive into history, to pull out these narratives that provide context because a lot of our history teachers failed us. Mm. A lot of us don't, I mean, we don't know a lot of what happened, not only in this country, but in other countries. I know a lot about the Black revolutionaries who fought for freedom and justice and, and the Black people who fought um, against enslavement. Deneen, what you just said about putting history in context and putting your stories in context is so important because a lot of the times when people read these things or they you know, hear about something like Haiti, you know, what, what just happened in Haiti. They have no idea that Haiti is a country that was the first to throw off its enslavers and was really punished. I mean, as an independent Black nation, uh, Haiti was sort of segregated, uh, punished by the rest of the world community, which led to, you know, this these uh, sort of a, a lot of what it still contends with today. So I think putting the history, telling the history is so important. Uh, your work is so important. Uh, thank you for uh, focusing on Mississippi. That's uh, my mom's hometown. She's a woman, a child of the Delta. And I, I really hope you'll come back. Uh, you are just, um, you're telling stories that need to be told. You're providing information that people haven't gotten. And so thanks for providing it. And thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was an honor to be here. Thank you to you and thank you to your listeners. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here. Thank you. Thanks, Denine. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. Sam Fergoso is my producer. Cole Mitchell is my composer. Sydney Freeman is my production assistant. And my show dog is Maximus Justice, also known as Max. If you like us, please go on to iTunes and leave a five-star review. Maybe I'll even have the chance to read it on the air. I will give you my hugest and most profuse thanks if you do. Thanks for listening, everybody.